0: Well, let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis 18. Do you see enough of God? Or does life cloud your view of God? There's two fantastic views of God in this chapter. Two spectacular verses. Verses that we can take and use as anchors for our hearts and our minds, verses that we can take and use, not simply as anchors, but as lenses through which uh, we can see more of God. One speaks of God's power. Uh, We see it in uh, verse 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? We see uh, God's strength, His ability to do what we think is impossible and we need to see that when life seems impossible when promises seem implausible and when people seem impermeable to the gospel our verse this evening is the other great lens through which we see God in this chapter another verse to lock away in your mind not lock it away, not to look at it again, but to anchor it in your mind, lock it in place so that you can go back to it time and time again. It speaks of God's justice and righteousness, which we need to see when life seems unfair. When God deals darkly with his people, will not the judge of all the earth do right Or shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Verse 25. And we're simply going to state the truth and look at it a little bit and then apply it in two particular directions. First of all, God is righteous and does right. God is righteous and does right. God had stayed behind to talk with Abraham, to reveal to Abraham his plans for Sodom and Gomorrah. We read in verse 20, Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, and their sins so grievous, that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. And we read that the men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Actually, as a footnote in the NIV says, some ancient manuscripts say, the Lord remained standing before Abraham. Which is interesting, isn't it? That's what had happened earlier in the chapter. God had come and stood, as it were, patiently waiting for Abraham to notice him. Incredible. Um, and here would seem to be the same thing. It's, it's not particularly important which, which way it is in a sense, but it's just worth noting that here's, here's something of an insight into our God. But what he says here, and what Abraham says, is what we're looking at this evening. Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? This is Abraham's great concern. Will God do something that seems unfair, unjust, unrighteous? Will he destroy the godly with the wicked? That doesn't seem right. And of course, often the godly die alongside the wicked in natural disasters. Or in terrorist incidents. But what we've got here. Is an act of specific judgment. Where the judge is going to condemn this city. And Abraham is concerned that the innocent. Will perish alongside the guilty. In this act of very definite judgment. And so Abraham starts. To say. To speak to God. And as he starts to speak to God. I don't think that we should. Think of Abraham as we eagers down through these questions coming to a slow realisation that God will do the right thing. Nor should we think of Abraham really needing to twist God's arm to to make sure that God does the right thing. (coughs) Abraham states his belief right at the start. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And yes, it's a question. but it's, well, there's three ways to say it. We can say it as a question, as if Abraham's not sure, or a challenge. You are going to do right, aren't you? Or a statement of belief. The judge of all the earth shall do right, even though it's a question, uh, the scholars, the commentators say that it is better to take it as a statement of belief, a rhetorical question, where Abraham's asserting that God will do the right thing. He knows it. He knows it in his head. And I think one of the things that we see as we look at this chapter is, it's, as he prays, it's migrating from his head down to his heart, where he really uh, comes to hold on to it and to believe it. It's like the statement in Psalm 119 that we sang, verse 137. Righteous are you, O God, and upright are your judgments. Or earlier in the psalm, you are good, and what you do is good. The Bible states this over and over again. But right here at the beginning of Genesis, in the the opening sections of Genesis, where God is dealing with Abraham, the the, the father of of faith, as he's called, Abraham is saying in a very clear way, and it's being played out for us here, step by step, so that we can see that God is righteous. In Deuteronomy 32.4 Moses would say The Rock His work is perfect and all His ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice righteous and upright is He. Or in Psalm 145 verse 17 The Lord is righteous in all His ways and kind in all His deeds. Job thirty seven verse twenty three The Almighty We cannot find him. He is exalted in power, and he will do no violence to justice and abundant righteousness. He's not going to to harm um, his righteousness in any way or harm justice. Or Job eight verse three, more direct, does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert Pervert what is right. Habakkuk one three. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. And so as the rest of Scripture shows us and as Abraham's learning here, God is righteous and does what is right. And as Abraham talks with God here, he learns it. It moves from his head to his heart. And he he sees that even if there only were ten people who were righteous in the city, God would spare the whole city. Now that's beyond righteous, isn't it? Do you think Abraham's not just learning that that God is righteous here and that he's not going to to wipe away the innocent with the guilty. He's learning that even if there were only ten, probably not just in in the one city but in all of the five cities that God is going to judge, that if there were ten, God would spare the whole lot. That's not righteousness. That's graciousness. That's well beyond righteous, isn't it? And even, even someone as weak and as lingering as Lot is saved. And we see that above any question, the judge of all the earth does what is right even if it means that he has to send his angels into Sodom to forcibly drag one of his people out of the way of judgment. Do you see God's righteousness? Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Here it is right at the start of Scripture. Here's a test case for us, for Abraham, for all who would believe like Abraham. Is God just or unjust? And every step, is calculated to show the justness of God's actions. God comes down to see if it's as bad as he's heard it is. Now, God knows everything. He knows rightly what it's like in Sodom and Gomorrah, but he wants Abraham to know that he knows. And he sends the two angels so that they can ascertain how wicked the place is. The Old Testament required that if the death sentence was going to be carried out, there had to be two witnesses who could testify to the wickedness of the deed. Two witnesses who could say that this person deserves to die because they did such and such. And although God already knows the state of Sodom and Gomorrah, he's coming down to Abraham's level and our level so that we can see that he is above reproach. Here's a principle that we can trust. And two applications flow from it. And we want to come and look at those this evening then. First application then is because God is righteous, we can trust him. Because God is righteous, we can trust him. I suspect that that's the answer to the question that we all have. Why did Abraham stop praying? I always used to wonder, why did he not go down to five? Why did he not go down to two? Why did he not go down to one and keep going down? Well, I think that as God speaks each time, Abraham, although he knows in his head that the judge of all the earth will do right, it becomes increasingly clear that actually Abraham can trust him completely. Look at the words That God says, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. The whole place. If I find 45 there, I will not destroy it. For the sake of 40, I will not do it. I will not do it if I find 30 there. For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. For the sake of 10... I will not destroy it. You can almost imagine Abraham saying, Okay, I get it. You'll spare the city if there were only ten righteous people. Probably not just that one city, but but all of the cities in the plain for the sake of ten righteous people. And Lot is the sort of person who counts as righteous. If God would have spared five cities, well, so don't think of cities like New York or London. Uh, think perhaps more of actually what we would call a town or a village, a small town. That would have been the size of the place. But even so, there were big settlements uh, for, for the time. God is going to spare five cities because there were ten righteous people like Lot. What does that tell us about God's doing right? And here's something that we can hang our confidence on. We can hang our confidence on this in times of personal pain. I've been reading Job this last month, and Job, we know, had done nothing to deserve his suffering. Bleak, dark, tragic times swamp Job. And his three so called comforters come to him, and they haranguing him, accusing him of being secretly wicked. But Job knows that he has done nothing to deserve this. That before (laughs) God, there is no sin that that he is aware of. That he's not perfect, that's not the point. He he is not pursuing some wicked way. Uh, He knows that before God, he he has offered sacrifices for his sins and the sins of his children. Uh, And yet, this is just keeps coming on him, this suffering. And perhaps there are times whenever suffering and difficulty and personal pain swamp us. And Job reminds us that the judge of all the earth will do right. Job reminds us that the doing of that right may not come in this life. But we are not people who live life limited by birth and death. The judge of all the earth shall do right. And that right will come. Certainly in eternity shall not the judge of all the earth do right. And in times of personal pain, perhaps it's sickness that seems so unfair. It takes away months and years and robs us of opportunities. Uh, that we might otherwise have had. And we've seen that in our own fellowship, in our own congregations. We've seen it in, our, in the, the, the Christian community here in Donegal. We need to come back to this truth and remind ourselves, the judge of all the earth always does what is right. He never gets it wrong. And one day we will see the unveiling of it all. In times of theological perplexity, or just simple perplexity, we need to hang on to this verse. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Whenever children pass away in infancy, or someone has a miscarriage, or someone who's mentally handicapped, who has no hope of understanding the gospel, Or the Christian who commits suicide and where do we go? Or or, or someone and we just don't know what their state before God was. Well there may be other parts of scripture that feed in and provide parts of the answer but in the very heart of it we've got to come back to this verse. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And we can't Say, well, here's what I think's right, and I know that he'll do it. He'll do what I think's right. No, we've got to leave it with him and trust him. Times when we're perplexed, confused by his dealings. We don't know why something has happened. We come back to this. I don't know why it has happened, but I do know this. The judge of all the earth will only do what's right. Times of natural disaster. Sometimes Christians say things that, Impugn the honour of God. I remember hearing a pastor saying once about some disaster. I asked, why did God allow this to happen? And he said, well, God had nothing to do with this. God didn't want this to happen. I don't know. He's trying to get God off the hook, so to speak. But it's a, it's a poor answer because it makes God seem weak. And who wants to trust in a weak God? Who can't control a storm on a tiny planet? We don't have all the answers. But we do know that the judge of all the earth only does what is right. Psalm 119, verse 68 For you are good, and you only do good. Or, as the old Scottish metric had it, For good thou art, and good thou doest. We need to say with Job, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last. He will take his stand on the earth, even after my skin is destroyed. Yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see, and not another. My heart faints within me. There's a sense in Job that he is waiting for his Redeemer to come and to explain it all to him. He knows that his God does nothing without a reason, and... I think that we can, we can safely say that that explanation will be part of eternity. It may not be that it, we will be sat down and it will be explained to us, but we will see the unfolding of it all as we see what God had been doing, as we meet and talk with people. And I think we can say that because looking at the book of Job, God gives us a glimpse Behind the scenes and shows us why this happened, job didn't have that, we have it, but surely, if job had it, if job if we have it about job, surely is that not giving us an insight that when the curtain is pulled back, we will see it for ourselves, for our own lives, and we will say, the judge of all the earth did right, he did. Do what was right. In times of great wickedness and immorality. Where the godless are getting away with their godlessness. We need to hang on to this little verse. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right. When God's people are being persecuted and bankrupted and imprisoned and burned to death. And the persecutors get away with it. It doesn't seem fair. But we say to ourselves, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Here's a truth to be hung on to and trusted. The judge of all the earth shall do what's right. But we need it to migrate from our heads to our hearts, from this page in our Bibles to hanging on to it. We need to preach it to ourselves especially when it's harder to hang on to it uh, than at other times. Maybe we need to take it along with that verse in Psalm 119, verse 68. For good thy art, and good thy doest. So because God is righteous, we can trust him. And thirdly, because God is righteous, we must pray to him. This follows from the conviction that God will do what is Right. Watch what Abraham does with this truth. He prays. He doesn't sit back and say, Well, God uh, will do what's right. He uses that fact as a lunch pad for prayer. Prayer in particular for the lost. These two things aren't unconnected. He knows a truth in his head and he starts to pray it out in his life. He's convinced that God is righteous. Actually, he's convinced that God will judge the wicked. And so he starts to pray. He knows these people deserve it. And because he's convinced of God's righteousness, he starts to pray for these people that they would have another opportunity to repent. It's one of the most remarkable examples of intercession in the Bible, says one writer. And there's four things I want us to note as we we close. First of all, the reason for this prayer. Abraham is concerned For God's honor. How it will look if God sweeps away the righteous with the unrighteous. Treating them all alike. Abraham is a concern for the honor and name of God. And how it's perceived by the nations. And his prayer comes out of this concern. It's like Moses in Exodus 32. Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out? To kill them in the mountains and wipe them off the face of the earth? In Numbers 13 Moses prays the same way. Um, the people are refusing to go into Canaan and he says about the nations. The nations have already heard that you, O Lord, are with these people and that you, O Lord, have been seen face to face and that your cloud stays over them and that you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. If you put these people to death all at one time, the nations who have heard this report about you will say the Lord wasn't able to bring these people into the land he promised them. Oh, do you see Moses' concern that the peoples around will dishonor the name of God. Joshua had the same concern. Joshua 7, 9, the Canaanites and the other people of the country, this is after Akinson, will hear about this and they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? The reason for Abraham's prayer is concerned for God's honor and God's glory. And does that not challenge us when we pray for the people around us, as we pray for our county, our nation? God is righteous. He will judge. And the people around us are not ready. And how we should be burdened for God's honor and glory. Lord, how is it to your glory that so few honor your son? How is it that you allow people to take your son's name in vain? O Lord, will you act for your glory's sake? For your name's sake, will you act? This is how we should pray. The highest motivation for our praying. What will people think of God? What do people think of God? Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's what we want. Secondly, the focus of his prayer. Note what happens. There's a movement in Abraham's prayer. He starts off, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? His concern is for the righteous. Then look what happens next. What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away? And not spare the place? He's now, he's moved from praying for the righteous to praying for the whole city including the lost. He's praying for all of them. It's as if he's he's convinced that, yeah, well, God will spare the righteous, but actually, what about the whole place? His concern flows out of a concern for God's righteousness, but the specific focus is on the lost. He doesn't mention Lot. He prays for the city. That wicked, polluted, perverted, depraved, a botched place Abraham doesn't say well it gets what it's coming to it he starts to pray for it I think that's incredible how often is it the case that we would wish judgment to fall on the wicked rather than pray for them or something were to happen to them we would we would inwardly nod approvingly and say well they got what they deserved and, and God has acted in judgment Matthew Henry says though sin is to be hated sinners are to be pitied And prayed for. Six times Abraham intercedes for these wicked cities. Here's our challenge Are we prayerful for the lost around us? Because we know the judge of all the earth will act. J.O. Packer, in his book Knowing God, is speaking about how knowing God should give us energy to pray for God's cause for the honour and glory of God and then he says this by this we may test ourselves if there is in us little energy for such prayer and little consequent practice of it, this is a sure sign that as yet we scarcely know our God. I find that I was reading that this week found that really convicting. Have I been interceding for the people of Donegal the way I should? Packer says, If there is in us little energy for such prayer, it is a sure sign that as yet we scarcely know our God. Samuel, speaking to the Israelites, says, Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. You might say this is God's people that he's he's committing himself to pray for. Yes, but he's just been telling them how they have been disobedient in asking for a king. They've been rebelling. John Knox spent his last two days on this earth praying for the church. The question for you and for me is, will we take up this solemn duty, the focus of his prayer, Thirdly, the manner of his prayer. Bold. God has spoken. Abraham comes before God with boldness, a definiteness, a directness, a sense of arguing with God for the sake of others, like Moses did in Exodus 32. He said, Oh Lord, blot me out of your book rather than blot them out. Paul in Romans 9 says he wished himself accursed for the sake of Israel so they could be saved. There's a boldness there. We may not go to those lengths, but Jesus teaches us in Luke 11 that we're to be bold. In Luke 18, that we're to be, there's to be a boldness in our prayer. So we come and we, we, we keep coming to God with this. And then matching that, there's a reverence in Abraham. He speaks to God, but he speaks boldly and reverently. Abraham spoke up again, verse 27, Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes. He's reverent. There's an understanding that even though God has come to him as it were as a friend, that there's a vast gulf between them. There's reverence and awe. We must have that in our prayer. And there's persistence, perhaps, this is the key feature of Abraham's prayer. Six times he raises the matter, each time pushing for more. Reverently, yet boldly, he doesn't give up. The stakes are too high. Do you need to be encouraged to keep going, to keep persisting in prayer? I do. And may this passage do it for us. Persisting in praying for loved ones, persisting in praying for. The area in which we live. Let this draw us back to persistent prayer. And then, fourthly, the potential of his prayer. Abraham is praying and God keeps answering. That's encouragement enough, isn't it? Okay, it's easy whenever God is audibly answering your prayer. Or you can see an answer. But notice that God doesn't get irritated by Abraham's persistence. That should encourage us to keep coming and asking from God. Jesus encourages us to do that, particularly when our concerns are for others. In fact, I I meant to, to give a quote earlier there about praying for others. Um, One writer Griffith Thomas says there is scarcely any part of prayer so prominent in the New Testament than prayer for others. Our Christian life, hear this, will never be really healthy and strong until we make intercession a very prominent and even predominant feature of our private devotions. I felt really rebuked by that. Our Christian life will never be really healthy and strong until we make intercession a very prominent and even predominant nature, or feature of our private devotions. But let me come back to this potential of this prayer. More significant is what God is prepared to do in response to Abraham's persistent, humble prayer. Look at the potential. The Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I'll spare the whole place for their sake. 45, oh, I'll not destroy it. Right down to 10, I will not destroy it. For the sake of 10 people, he will not destroy Sodom. All because Abraham has prayed for it. If 10 righteous people had been there, God would have spared those cities because Abraham had prayed. God would have spared the righteous, yes. Anyway, he does that with Lot. But because of Abraham's prayer, it would seem that he would have spared more than that. He would have spared the cities. Does that not show us two things? Shows us the blessing that Christians are to a town or city, even just by being there. Who knows what judgment our very being in Letterkenny or Milford or Convoy Or even in Donegal has spared this county from. We don't know. The people of Sodom and Gomorrah wouldn't have known. The blessing that would have accrued to them. If there had been ten righteous people in the city. But God's giving us a glimpse behind the scenes here. We may think what am I doing here? I'm Achieving nothing. We don't know that we're achieving nothing. What encouragement. Maybe we're acting as salt and preserving a society or the people that are closest to us from heaping up more wrath against themselves. Who knows? And more. The other thing we see here is the potential that our prayers have. Not just the potential that Christians being in a place have, but the potential our prayers have. Here's encouragement to pray for the lost and for the wicked. And for those in government and those in authority and those around us. Who knows, we may be the only people praying for our neighbours or those we work with. Who else might be praying for some of those that you know? In Ezekiel 22, God speaks about the people of the land practice extortion extortion and commit robbery. They oppress the poor and needy and mistreat the foreigner denying them justice. I looked for someone among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so that I would not have to destroy it. But I found no one. So I will pour out my wrath on them and consume them with my fiery anger. No one to stand in the gap. Who else was there praying for the people of Sodom but Abraham? And oh, what mercy those wicked people would have enjoyed if there had been more righteous people in their city, utterly undeserved. What blessing those believers would have been. What an encouragement to us to keep living where God has placed us and to pray for the place that God has placed us in. You need to be reminded of these two verses so you can see more of God, so you can be equipped to live in this broken world in which he's placed us, equipped to live when our own circumstances are broken and equipped to live amongst brokenness and sinful people. Let's, if we're able, stand as we come to God in prayer. Father in heaven, you are righteous and we thank you and worship you for this great truth. And we come and we pray, Lord God, that you would help us to hang on to this fact that you are good and you do what is good. And no good thing will you withhold from those who live uprightly. And help us to to reason backwards from that, knowing that what you are doing for us is always a good thing and that it is a righteous thing and that one day we will see you honoring it, rewarding it and blessing it. Father, help us to hang on to this truth in times of personal pain and disappointment and perplexity that the judge of all the earth always does what is right. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.